read the Bible now. If you would like to carry on those conversations after church, that would be great, or after the formal meeting time. So Amos chapter 9, it's on page 652 of the Bibles that you were handed when you came in. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the, of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Amoreans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, Disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Uh, the second reading tonight comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 5, uh, which you can find on page 783. Acts chapter, five, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 5 to 21. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear uh, from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Okay, thanks, Katrina. It's just good to uh, hear the Bible read, isn't it? I was just struck by that verse in Acts 15. Uh, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Great verse. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you've joined us the last week in a sermon series on Amos. and It's been a challenge for many of us. I want to begin by asking you this simple question. Uh, what's your attitude uh, to the Bible? Here it is. It's the, it's the Word of God. Living and active. What is your attitude towards it? How do you approach it? As you walk into church each Sunday and you're handed the Bible, what do you think? As someone stands up to read the scriptures, what's going on in your mind and in your heart? As I stand to preach, what, do you, what are you thinking as the Word of God is expanded? As you wake up tomorrow morning and, you know, on your bedside table or on your bookshelf, there's a Bible there. What goes through your mind as you see, see the Word of God? How do you approach the Bible? You may have heard of an evangelist. His name is D.L. Moody. Uh, one day during a service, he was leading the service, and there was this group of rowdy blokes, and they were heckling him throughout the service. Uh, they heckled him for about half an hour or so, and then he got up to preach. And they still kept heckling him. And with his uh, American accent, he, he leaned over and he said, you jeered during the prayers and I said nothing. You jeered during the singing and I said nothing. 
but now you jeer as the word of God is preached? I would sooner jest with forked lightning. And that's the right attitude, isn't it? If this really is the living, active word of God, if this is how God speaks to us, how, how God has chosen to reveal himself, if this is sharper than a double-edged sword, if this is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, we've got to approach this word with, with reverence, uh, with fear, uh, with trembling, just longing and desiring for God to speak to us. But it's funny. I think many of us have struggled with the, the series on the book of Amos. Uh, we struggle with what it teaches and what it says. I've had quite a few emails. Here's just a sample of them. One person said, uh, I don't like it when you talk about hell. I wanted to write back and say, well, maybe take that up with Jesus when you see him and ask him why he talked about hell so much. Another person said, uh, I don't believe in hell. My God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And I wanted to write back and say, well, your God isn't the God of the Bible. Your God is a nice, comfortable, cuddly, spiritual teddy bear. Another person said, I don't like Amos. I don't really read the Old Testament. It's not relevant anymore. I thought, this is the living, active word of God. Of course it's relevant. God hasn't changed. So why do we find it hard with the book of Amos? Why? Because I think we treat the Bible a bit like any other book. We approach it uh, saying, what can I get out of it? And we approach it saying, I I like that bit, but I don't like this bit. And so I'll take this bit, but I'll ignore that bit. Or we we put ourselves over the Bible and we'll decide what God should have said (laughs) because actually we know better than him. And when we come to this this chapter in Amos, I think it it challenges us because it corrects our wrong view of God and our wrong view of God's people. Firstly, for our wrong view of God, particularly God's presence. We're about to approach Christmas and we're going to sing carols about Jesus. He was given the name Jesus because he'll save you from their sins. Uh, But you'll also call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. What does that phrase, God with you, mean? What does it mean for God to be with us? Is it just you know, the arm around the shoulder? Is God being with us just the nice Jesus footprints poem, you know, where he carries you through the hard times of life? Is that what it means for God to be with us? People say to me, if God could just be real to me, he could show himself, he could be with me, then life would be easier. I'm thinking, Really? Do you really want the, the holy, omnipotent, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing God to really show himself and be with you and stand face-to-face with him? Is that what you want? Because remember how the Lord is described in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and he thunders from Jerusalem. God is not a, a cuddly teddy bear. God is a a roaring lion, and not a lion with dentures, but a lion with real teeth. As C.S. Lewis says in Narnia, talking about Aslan, he's not safe. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And if you approach the Bible with a view of God who is just safe, you'll have a very lopsided, tame view of God. Because chapter 9, verse 1, Amos saw the Lord, 
That's interesting. Through the whole of the book of Amos, he, he, he's had visions about God. Now he actually sees God. Where is God? He's standing at the altar. Who is the God that he came face to face with? Verse 5. The Lord. Yahweh Almighty. Who, who, who touches the earth. And just with a touch, the whole earth can melt. Uh, who, who causes the land to rise like the Nile, who causes the floods, who causes the earthquakes. He's the one, verse 6, who builds his lofty palace in the heavens. He's far, far above this earth. He's the one who can, who can destroy us at a word and yet can save us through his son. He is the one that Isaiah saw in his temple and cried, Woe is me. He is the one who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, who knows everything, who can just destroy us or save us. We're in his hands. That's the right view of God. And when you approach that kind of God in a book like Amos, then you don't just think, oh, a nice cuddly teddy bear. We have a wrong view of God. We have a wrong view of God's people. So we read about Israel, God's people, and we think, yeah, you know, there were God's people. There was this event called the Exodus. It was in their calendar. And God had rescued them and God had saved them and brought them to himself. And they've got the law and they were different from the nations. And God called them his treasure possession and they were safe and they were secure. And so the book of Amos really confuses us. Because God's people, Israel, don't seem to be different from the world at all. Uh, we've seen over the past weeks they're a proud nation. They live in their ivory clad houses, sitting back, sipping wine from their big goblets. And they're just mocking the world because, hey, I'm God's person. I'm chosen. And they're hypocrites because they, they just play the part. They, they know what to say, how to stand in church. They know what answers to give, what prayers to pray. And they've got a great band. And God says, chapter 6, I hate you, worship. It's all show. There's no heart. And these people, there's no justice. They, uh, they stand in the temple and they know about God, but they walk out into the world and they trample on the poor and they don't care about those in need. They don't care for the widows and the orphans. They look on afar and they do nothing. But these Israelites, they just kept on pretending because that's what it is. It's pretense. And we do it all the time. We've got this, this cloak called religion. And you park your car in Kirbali and you put the cloak on. And you know what to say and how to stand and what to, what to do. And you're trying to cover up the fact that deep down life still revolves around you and yourself. And that was the Israelites living a kind of spiritual dream world. They'd forgotten God's holiness. They didn't like God's hatred of sin because they just liked this cloak called religion. And it made them feel safe and secure. And the book of Amos, it's a challenge. Because we are the new Israel, the church. And what God is saying through Amos is that not all who are in church really are church. Because churches, including this church, are full of people who are not really God's people. Because their hearts and their minds have never really been transformed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And life is still about them and what they want and how they want to live. And I think that's why we struggle with Amos, because we don't like it. It enlarges our view of God. He's not your cuddly teddy bear. And it narrows your view of God's people. Because it's easy to pretend. And the danger of preaching a sermon like this is that 
the people who need to be challenged and, and shaken will leave here feeling complacent. And the people who need to be assured will leave here feeling a bit scared. I don't want to do that. I, I can't help that. I just pray the Spirit will speak to you where you're at tonight. So I'm going to pray and then we'll unpack Amos chapter 9. Lord, we approach your word tonight with fear and with trembling because you are the Lord Almighty who roars from heaven. Lord, teach us your ways. Help us to read, mark, and inwardly digest your word tonight. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I've got three P's for you tonight. first one is God's presence. God's presence uh, to judge. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord. He's standing by the altar and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so the threshold shake. That's the temple. Uh, Bring them down on the heads of all the people and those who are left are killed by the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Now, if you know your Old Testament, uh, that verse is dripping in irony because King Jeroboam, king of Israel, he set up Bethel as like the alternative worship center. They couldn't be bothered to go to Jerusalem. That was too far for them to go. So set up a temple in Bethel, and they'd have their fake services, and their fake sacrifices, and their fake temple, and the king, King Jeroboam, would stand at the altar, and he would officiate over these fake ceremonies. And the irony is that as Amos looks, he doesn't see King Jeroboam, he sees the real king, and his name is Yahweh. And God is now present in these gatherings, but he's not present uh, to bless them. He's not present to receive their worship. The game is up. He's present to, to judge them. And so he topples the temple. Uh, verse 1, strike the tops of the pillars. It's going to topple from top to bottom. This is the hand of God. And the people there, are they be decapitated. Uh, some will try and escape, but they can't. Because God will grab them. And the temple is supposed to be a place and a sanctuary has become this, this slaughterhouse. And you say, oh, God is with us. But it's not as a comfort. It's that, a terrifying act of judgment. Remember God's judgment last week? It's fair because we have sinned. We haven't loved God. It is terrifying. And he says not one will escape. What I find terrifying in these verses is the number of, of personal pronouns. God keeps saying, I will, I will, I will. Uh, verse, uh, verse 1, I will kill with the sword. Uh, verse 2, I will bring them down. Verse 3, I will hunt them down. Verse 3, I will command the serpent. Verse 4, I will command the sword. He says, this is the hand of God. And that is terrifying, isn't it? People often say to me, uh, God's judgment is being separated from God. Or, or hell is the absence of God. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says judgment, terrifying judgment, or hell, is actually the presence of God. But being in his presence uh, uh, as your judge, as the one who is full of wrath, not full of love. And if you don't believe me, listen to Revelation 14. It says this, He will drink the, the wine, talking about hell, He will drink the wine of God's fury. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. 
in the presence of the Lamb. That's what Amos saw, the presence of God to judge his people. And when God comes to judge, please don't think you can learn or hide away from him. And we as a world have been trying to hide from God ever since the fall in Genesis 3. Verses 2 to 4 says, It's a very foolish thing to play hide and seek with God. Though they dig... It's just, just imagine this picture of the Israelites trying to dig down to the depths of the, of the grave, to Sheol, to trying to hide from God there, but no, God's hand will take them. And so they try and climb to the heavens, up to the highest point, take their refuge in the skies. No, God will find them there. And so they try and uh, uh, climb Mount Carmel, the, the highest point in the land, but God will find them there. And so they put on their scuba diving gear, and so they, they try and dive to the bottom of the sea, but God will find them there. And there's no military or political refuge, verse 4. God's eyes will rest on them, but not for good, but for evil. And as I read verses 2 to 4, do you know which song sprung to mind? There ain't no mountain high enough. And there ain't no valley deep enough. And there ain't no river wide enough to keep me getting to you. Except God's not singing it as a romantic love song. He's singing it as a judgment song. Because there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. God is with his people, but he's come to judge them. And these verses 2 to 4, they really shocked me this week because they reminded me of one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 139. O Lord, you know me, you've searched me. And he goes, there's nowhere I can run from you. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there also. Except now, if you're on the wrong side of God's judgment... That nowhere to run and nowhere to hide is a terrifying thing and not a comforting thing. Or they remind me of Romans 8, beautifully comforting verses. Neither height nor depth or anything or creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Except if you don't know God. If you deserve his judgment, then neither height nor depth or anything or creation will be able to hide us from the wrath of God. Have you got it? Have you got it, friends? On the day that God comes to judge to be with us, the Lord Almighty will find everybody. You can hide nowhere. And that is terrifying. This week I walked around Kirribilli. Just decided to walk around Kirribilli and look at people. About 6,000 people live here. I don't know how many of them know Christ. But if they don't know Christ, it's a terrifying day when God is with them. And I just thought about carols. You know, we're inviting a thousand people. And we'll sing about Emmanuel, God with us. But if they don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that is a terrifying thing. Because there's no refuge. And so I just prayed. It's easy to beat us up, isn't it? We must do more and evangelize more. But no, just pray more. Every time you see somebody who doesn't know Christ, just pray, God have mercy. God have mercy. God's presence to judge is a terrifying thing. God's people, they're sifted. Look at verse 7 with me. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites or the Egyptians, declares the Lord? And if you read that verse, you go, hang on a sec, God. Of course the Israelites are different to the Egyptians. The Israelites are your people. 
The Israelites are the ones who had that special relationship with you. The Israelites are the one that you chose. Yet God says they're the same as the Cushites. Let me be very clear, God is not revoking his covenant. Israel did have a special relationship, but, but being an Israelite was a huge privilege. But with that privilege came the responsibility. Because they knew more about God, they were more accountable in some way. And sure, God had rescued them and brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, but, but merely knowing that event called the Exodus and remembering it without any thanksgiving or without any awe or worship or obedience, it was utterly, utterly meaningless. And you can imagine a temple full of people saying, I'm okay, I'm an Israelite. Remember the Exodus? God saved me. And God says, no, no, you're no different to the, the Cushites because I'm God of the whole world. And just as, verse 7, I brought you out of Egypt, I also brought the Philistines from Kaptha and the Arameans from Kerr. I've delivered people from outside of Israel as well. How foolish you are, Israel, to think that just because you, you wear the badge and you have a mascot saying the covenant, to think that you're safe. Because when God comes to judge, it's like a sieve. That's the analogy that God uses in verse 9. I will command and I will shake the house of Israel and as grain is shaken in a sieve... And not a pebble will reach the ground. When God comes to, to be with his people and to judge his people, it's like everyone is put into a big sieve. What do you use a sieve for? What's the purpose of a sieve? It's to separate. Isn't it? Separate the stuff that you want from the stuff that you don't want. To separate the good from the bad. Uh, You'd be utterly foolish to, to start with the things that you want and the things that you don't want, or the good things and the bad things, and to mix them together in the sieve, and then to sieve it, and then to get the good and the bad back out again. That's not how it works. You put things in a sieve because you can't tell the good from the bad, and you want to find out what is good and what is bad. And that's what God is saying here. On the day he comes to judge, he will, there'll be two groups of people, those who love God and live for God, and those who love themselves and live for themselves. And I can't tell just by looking at it to see your faces who, who really believes, who is a genuine follower of Jesus. Because you can look the part, and you can sing the songs, and you can possibly do it all fake. God knows. And when he step, steps in to judge his world, he will sift us. And there'll be the sheeps and the goats. And there'll be the wheat and the chaff. Remember, not all Israel really were Israel. So he says in verse 8, the eyes of the sinful Lord are on the sinful kingdom. He says in verse 10, All the sinners among my people, the sinners among my people, among my church, will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. What is a mark of, of the, the people who will be judged and found wanting? Well, it's there in verse 10. They're sinners. And yet they, don't be bothered, they can't be bothered to ask for forgiveness or repent of their sins. And they're, they're complacent. They're saying disaster will not overtake us or meet us. They're, they've got nothing to be sorry about. They've got nothing to be alarmed about in the future. Because, hey, I'm somebody. You know, once saved, always saved. They're complacent people who are living in a land of make-believe. You know, I'll be okay, I've got the covenant. I'll be okay, I, I once prayed a prayer back in 1990. I'll be okay because... I hang around with lots of Christians and I lead youth groups and I lead Bible studies and they're comfortable. They've gone to the days where they said, woe is me and I'm a wretched sinner. They, they just say, 
I've got the house, I've got the car, I've got the church, I've got my family. I'll just slot, in, slot God in where I want to slot him in. And they're overconfident. It's not, Lord, if you mark my transgressions, who can stand? But, Lord, if you mark my transgressions, I would stand because I'm good and I'm wonderful because there was an event called Calvary 2,000 years ago. And I, I know about that event and I can draw six boxes and I can explain the gospel to people. And God looks at them and says, but what about your heart? What I did this week was I, I just listed the people that I know who were once in church, in this church and in other churches, and who I know are now not going to any church at all. And as far as I can tell, have no real relationship with Jesus. And I stopped at the end of the first page. On the day when he comes to sift his people, there will be those who have sat in churches and will be shocked. God knows the heart. So who are the true Israel? Who are the ones who will be saved, who will be sifted and found uh, to be pleasing in God's sight? Well, they're the ones, verse 10, who, who don't say a disaster will not overtake us, but they're the ones who plead for mercy. They're the ones who do what chapter 5, verse 6 has told us to do. It's up, up there. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord that you may live. They're the ones who, who know God, who seek God, who make the effort to know him better, who, who know about the plumb line, who know about the sieve, and they throw themselves at the feet of God and cry out for mercy. And they're the ones who know they're a sinner. They, they are a sinner among the people, but, but they long to be holy, and they keep coming back to God's grace. And they're the ones who know what is good and love what is good and hate what is evil. And they're the ones whose gospel has transformed their whole life. And they're the ones who are trusting in God's promise. Because that's how the book ends. Not with judgment, with a great promise. And my question, if you look at at these last verses, is, is this you? Are you longing and waiting for this? God's promise to restore. Verse 11, In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent, or literally booth. The kingdom, the, the kingship will be restored and I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and will build it as, as it used to be. So that, they, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom is just uh, a hostility towards God. Look at the next line. And all the nations that bear my name. That's what we're looking forward to. A day of restoration. A new kingdom with a new king and all the Gentiles, all the nations that bear his name, that bear the name of Yahweh, that bear the name of God, that bear the name of Jesus, they will be standing, they will be restored. And verse 13, there will be great prosperity, no longer famine, no longer droughts, but crops in abundance. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And God says, I'll bring back my exiled people Israel and they will rebuild and they will live there, and they will plant vineyards. It's just a picture of beautiful peace and beautiful prosperity. That's the promise. And so when was it fulfilled? Remember our three mountains from last week? They're here. It was fulfilled in history, partly. God did judge them. Israel was destroyed, yet a remnant survived. And the end of the 6th century, God brought back the remnant. They rebuilt the city. They planted vineyards. They drank the wine. They had a beautiful, beautiful life. But is that Palestine today? (laughs) Would you describe Palestine as a place of peace and prosperity? No. Has it been fulfilled in Christ? 
Yeah. This promise of restoration, of new wine driven from the mountains and flowing from the hills, has been partly fulfilled in Christ. It's amazing, we heard it read in Acts chapter 15, uh, when James stood up at the Council of Jerusalem, he chose Amos chapter 9 to preach on, and picked up that verse in verse 12, all the nations, all the Gentiles that bear my name will be restored. And that's you, because you're in Amos chapter 9. Because at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, uh, the new Israel, God's church, included all the nations that bear the name of Jesus. And you're one of them. And see how if you're involved in Amos 9, yeah, the judgment is real. But if you are bearing the name of Jesus, if you've, you've come to the cross and you've sought refuge in the cross, then actually you will be restored. You have been restored. There ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. There ain't no river wide enough. There's a place called Calvary. And that's the only place you can run to. And the only place you can hide. And you will have peace. And you will have prosperity. And you will enjoy intimacy with Jesus. Oh, not in the worldly sense. You won't have peace in all your relationships. You'll still fight and you'll still bicker. Uh, You won't have greater prosperity than ever before. But you have peace with God. And you have great prosperity in your relationship with God. You'll be rich in Christ. It's been partly fulfilled. But it's not over yet. And that's why we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And we're waiting for the presence of God again. And God to stand at the altar again. And we're waiting for the day, the end day. When new wine won't just drip from the mountains. But there'll be a new dwelling place. God will be with his people and we'll be with him and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and that day is what we're waiting for it's called heaven as I prayed this week I I long for heaven (laughs) I long for heaven just long for restoration perfect relationship with God perfect peace and perfect prosperity and as I just prayed and longed for heaven saying come Lord Jesus I thought actually it's a pretty selfish prayer to pray it is pretty selfish because my family don't know Christ yet my friends don't know Christ yet and mixed in with that come Lord Jesus I'm praying God be merciful be patient, be kind because what Amos has done to me is Enlarge my view of God. He's not a cuddly lion. He's not a tame lion. He's the one who's come to judge us. It's narrowed my view of church. I long to see people who don't just go through the motions, but whose hearts and whose mind really do love Jesus. And that's shown by the way that they live and the decisions they make and the choices they make. And it's done more than that. It's made me long for heaven when I will be restored and this promise will come true. That's because the word of God is living and active. So cherish it and study it and read it and delight in it. Let me pray. I saw the Lord standing at the altar.
Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that our refuge is in him because the wrath fell on him and not us. Lord, we thank you that the temple has been destroyed because Jesus is our temple. And we thank you that the only place to hide is in Christ. And Lord, I plead with you to have mercy on any here tonight who do not yet know Christ. And Lord, I plead with you to to expose hypocrisy in this church and to bring us humbly to the foot of Jesus, trusting in him alone. And Lord, we long for restoration. Lord, you do keep your promises, so yeah, we do pray, come Lord Jesus, and please be merciful. I'll set for Jesus' sake.